Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jam Tomorrow, where we look at the promises made after the war and what happened to them. I'm Ros Taylor. Today, we're discussing contraception, how it was introduced, who approved it, and its seemingly endless controversies. It's the women often treated very badly. I mean, it did depend. So there will be some little communities that were very supportive, but I know other cases where the women were slapped, spat out, name-called on a daily basis. Certainly there are loads of examples of women that say it was wholly liberating for them to feel like, for the first time, psychologically, they weren't fearful of becoming pregnant. The pill kind of recast, you know, the whole choreography of relationships. It's the cornerstone of women's health and well-being, the ability to be able to control their fertility and decide if, when, with whom and how many times they become pregnant. Surely we should have this sorted by now. In Brave New World, which was written in 1932, women were trained to get out a Malthusian belt when they were about to have sex to make sure they didn't get pregnant. We now have lots of different contraceptives, and many of them are free. But here we are in the UK in 2023, and half of pregnancies are unplanned. One in five of all of them end in abortion. Whatever your politics, that's not an ideal outcome. But it's not just the mechanics of contraception. And as we'll find out, although the pill changed everything, it's not a simple story of better contraception leading to sexual freedom. The way we think about contraception has changed massively since the war. Until the middle of the last century, abortion used to be considered a contraceptive. It was seen as less of a sin than condoms. Nor was it inevitable that the Catholic Church would urge Catholics not to take the pill. The Pope seriously considered allowing married women to take it. And some feminists saw the pill not as a liberation, but just another form of patriarchal oppression that made women permanently available to male desire. Even today, there are voices calling for women to reject some forms of contraception, sometimes in the name of feminism and complete ownership over our bodies. I'm Ros Taylor, and this is Jam Tomorrow. War shakes up civilians' lives. It exposes them to new risks and sometimes new temptations. The Second World War was no exception. One and a half million US soldiers were posted to Britain or passed through it on their way to fight in Europe. 
For women, there was the chance to serve in the military. Britain was actually a pioneer in this. It gave women more senior roles than the US did. American soldiers in Britain had to be reminded to respect female officers. A British woman officer or non-commissioned officer can, and often does, give orders to a man private. The men obey smartly and know it is no shame. For British women have proven themselves in this way. There is not a single record in this war of any British woman in uniformed service quitting her post or failing in her duty under fire. Now you understand why British soldiers respect the women in uniform. But in wartime, women are also felt to be especially vulnerable. And they were. To give just one example, at the end of the war, hundreds of thousands of German women were raped by Russian soldiers as the Red Army surged across the country. But in Britain, the government was alarmed about the perceived threat to British women from men on their own side. The Ministry of Information sent informants to talk to US soldiers, and they were worried about what they heard. The US soldier has very little sincere respect for English girls. By and large, he is convinced that they are all inferior to American girls in beauty, in intelligence, in knowledge of the world, in smartness of clothes, in traditional submission to men, in the use of makeup, in the ability to dance, in independence of spirit, in verve. His attitude towards them is that they are all that is available and will have to do until he gets back to God's country. He considers them all fair game. He is convinced he can sleep with all of them and will, without much prompting, substantiate his statement with a variety of details and colourful examples out of his allegedly personal experience. The Archbishop of Canterbury had a suggestion for protecting girls from these feckless foreigners. The excessive drinking of young people is thought to be a serious problem, both on its own account and as leading to promiscuity. The Archbishop of Canterbury's suggestion of separate cafes for young people to prevent them from frequenting public houses has met with approval. When it came to sex, most of the risks fell on women, and yet they were blamed for luring men and spreading disease. Poster campaigns warned men about the dangers of catching venereal disease from loose women. The easy girlfriend spreads syphilis and gonorrhea, which unless properly treated may result in blindness, insanity, paralysis, premature death. If you have run the risk, get skilled treatment at once. Treatment is free and confidential. US troops were urged to use condoms. Rubber ones had been around since 1855. But as far as the British government was concerned, since no decent woman was having sex outside marriage, it was unthinkable to promote ways of avoiding pregnancy. What did ordinary people think? There are the moralists who want more stress laid on the religious and moral aspect and who also want to frighten people into chastity by showing them how truly horrible these diseases are. And there are those who believe that we are dealing with physical health and not morals and that it would be better to concentrate on methods of prevention rather on the fact that abstinence is not harmful. But on this, the government was already out of step with public opinion, as the Ministry of Information privately admitted. The majority appear to favour the health or medical approach rather than the moral approach. Meanwhile, no matter what the Archbishop of Canterbury said, people were having sex outside marriage. In the northwestern and southwestern regions, adverse comment is reported to be growing over girls who walk out with coloured troops. Criticism is directed at the girls rather than at the troops. At the same time, the extremely pleasing manners of the coloured troops are commented on. And often it was unprotected sex, with predictable consequences. Particular concern is expressed about the growing number of illegitimate babies, many of coloured men. 
Having a baby outside marriage, or an illegitimate child, as they were known, was stigmatised in British society. I should know. My grandmother gave my mother up for adoption in 1938 after her father said he'd throw her out of the house if she kept her. But having a mixed-race baby carried another level of stigma. These children were known, in language we wouldn't use now, as brown babies. Lucy Bland is a professor at Anglia Ruskin University and the author of Britain's Brown Babies. There was huge concern. I mean, it varied enormously, but the women were pressured often by their parents because many of them were living at home. They were young women. They were pressured by the mother and baby homes that they often had to go to. They were pressured to give up the child. They were pressured by local priests in many cases. And I think it was very hard for them to actually insist on keeping the child. I mean, some did very bravely. But I know when people say, oh, how could they give up their child? The pressures were so enormous. And even when they did keep the baby, they got so much difficulties, so much flack from everybody, from you know, left and right, and were spat at and whatever. So I think it was a very hard choice, and many of them had to give up the child. They often thought, oh, it's going to be adopted and you know have a, a better life. But of course, the majority weren't adopted. They went into care and presumably had a hard time there. Yes, most of them went into children's homes. I mean, of the people I've interviewed, nearly half were given up to children's homes. And of those, only a very small number were actually adopted. And so many spent their childhood in children's homes. Some were fostered, some successfully, but often not successfully. So that was very difficult. And some of those children's homes were appalling, actually. A lot of abuse. You might have thought that these women would have been allowed to marry the fathers of their children on the grounds that it was better for them to be born in wedlock, but they weren't. Some of them certainly did want to marry. I mean, in many cases, they were already married, both the mothers and all the fathers. But even when they did want to marry, it was refused because all the GIs, white or black, had to get permission from their commanding officer to get married. And all the registrars around the country knew that you had to have this permission. And it was invariably refused. And if you pushed, they said, well, back in the States, there were then 48 states, 30 of those had laws that forbade marriage between whites and blacks. They said, well, you wouldn't be able to marry if you go back to the States. So I think there might have been one or two you know, officers who did allow it, and the officers were nearly all, always white. But the vast majority of cases, it wasn't permitted. In fact, sometimes they were threatened. So I know of cases where a black GI has gone to the commanding officer, said, look, I want to marry my girlfriend and she's pregnant with my child. And they said, if you pursue this, we'll charge you with rape and we're anyway going to transfer you to another part of the country. The majority of these children never met their fathers. So when I interviewed people, I found that the vast majority knew very little about their fathers. One or two, I mean, well, very few had actually met their fathers, had, had sort of managed to meet their fathers. Some simply didn't have even a name. But things have really changed through DNA in the last few years. So they're now finding not their fathers, who would, you know, actually be dead by now, but finding relatives in the States. The mothers of mixed-race children were often publicly shamed. It's the women often treated very badly. I mean, it did depend. So there would be some little communities that were very supportive where everyone knew everyone and her and her child were accepted. But I know other cases where the women were slapped, spat out, name-called on a daily basis. End lover, you know, those kind of terms were thrown at them. And so I've had... Of course, I haven't interviewed the mothers because they're not alive, but I've talked to the children and they can remember how their mothers were treated. 
Monica Roberts grew up in Liverpool and remembers being abused in the street. Sometimes people would be cruel on the streets. It wasn't just a bit of discrimination like we talk about happens today. In 1950, you know, I was five or six, to go to school or to walk down the streets in my town was horrendous. Mm. People just stopped, turned, laughed, pointed. It was... I was made to feel like a complete outcast, like I was contaminated. It was not a bit of discrimination. Like, you know, people, when I talk to people and they, they, they'll discuss discrimination, but I didn't feel like that. I felt completely cast out by society. Mm. So it was... And your mum was too. Mum was she, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Often she got names called in the street. Uh, I remember one time there was a, a lady from a couple of doors away. Her and mum never got on. And I didn't know why they didn't get on. But I remember one day mum and me was sat on the gate where we lived and this lady came past and said something and mum got up and she was angry and the woman hit me mum. In 1948, the Windrush arrived from the Caribbean, and in the 1950s, increasing numbers of black people settled in Britain. But the children had no way of knowing that one day they wouldn't stand out. When they were young, they were often the only mixed-race or black child in the area, or black person in the area, because they were growing up in very geographically white areas, because the GIs tended to be sighted in East Anglia, the South Coast, Southwest, a few in the Midlands and the North, but... Mostly very white areas where people hadn't seen black people. And so they felt very different. And often they didn't, they were name called, but they didn't know how they were different. I mean, it's really interesting. Some of them said they didn't realize they were black till they were in their teens. I mean, one said she was, she was in a, a children's home in Bristol and she was the only black child in the whole of the children's home. But it was when she was 14, she suddenly saw herself in the mirror and she said, Why didn't anyone tell me I was black? You know, she'd been name called but hadn't registered. So when they got a bit older and quite a few went to London, they did meet people from the Caribbean. But interestingly, that didn't always work out because I've heard stories of them saying that often they weren't treated very well by them. They weren't black enough. They weren't from the Caribbean. They were othered yet again. So it didn't necessarily work very well. The notion of mixed race is really a term that's only become a kind of identity this century. And in the last century, really, to be mixed, you weren't sufficient, you weren't white, you weren't black, you were betwixt and between, which is an awful term given to them. But I think many of them felt they didn't belong. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. 
Book your stay today at LQ.com. At the end of the war, women left their wartime jobs and returned to their conventional roles. It was perfectly usual for women to leave their jobs when they got married so they could devote themselves to housework and children. And when it came to contraception, there were no real breakthroughs in the 40s and 50s. Claire Jones is a senior lecturer in the history of medicine at the University of Kent. For men, largely, it was the rubber condom or the sheath. So the condom was a disposable contraceptive that was used from the 1930s, made out of latex, so it could be quite thin and and disposable, or the sheath, which was reusable, washable, and there's a lot of paraphernalia that you could buy alongside the rubber sheath to keep it fresh and chalk it up and make sure it was pliable. So there was male rubber contraceptives and also rubber contraceptives for women, which were the cap or the diaphragm or sometimes called the pessary, which would be inserted into the vagina and used as a kind of barrier method to block the sperm. And also chemical pessaries as well, which would be used as a spermicide to kind of kill the sperm. So they're the kind of ready-made contraceptives, if you like. There are lots lots of other appliances that were used as contraceptive devices like syringes, douches, enemas that would kind of wash out the vagina and sponges as well that were also used as a barrier method. And of course, there are also non-mechanical methods, which were things like, you know, the, the withdrawal method, which was still very common into the 1950s among married couples. Abstinence, obviously, and abortion was a widespread method of contraception, especially in the 19th century when Working class women in particular didn't see anything morally wrong with abortion before quickening, as it was known. So, yeah, lots lots and lots of different methods available, not all of which are very well known. Even in the 1930s, it had been fairly easy to get hold of barrier methods. They would be readily available as like a medical appliance that then women would adapt to use themselves. So they were readily available from lots of different retailers, including Boots and places like Selfridges. And Mr Selfridge was quite a birth control advocate, so condoms especially were available from Selfridges quite early. But in the 1950s, it actually became harder to get hold of condoms. For a short time in the interwar period, condoms were available on street corners through vending machines from about 1929 to 1950. So morally that was seen as a bit wrong, so they were removed by 1950. The reason why abortion was treated as a contraceptive was because many women didn't think of the foetus as being truly alive until they could feel it moving. This was a long time before ultrasound and the famous image of a foetus sucking its thumb in the womb. For much of history, most of history, that abortion has been seen as a form of contraception and not and not something after the fact. There were kind of shot-bought female pills, as they were known, which were a euphemism for an abortificant, which sometimes were ineffective or sometimes highly poisonous, sometimes containing mercury and other kinds of caustic chemicals. Sometimes they would use a female friend in working class communities in particular. There would be women that would be one of them, if you like, that could perform these kinds of operations at a local level. So a lot of the times this kind of procedure would go under the radar and wouldn't be noticed. Although sometimes some of these women would get arrested. And if you've ever seen the film Vera Drake, that's quite a realistic portrayal of one of these women in working class 
communities. So yeah, a, a mixture of different things, homemade methods as well, which would include things like extremely hot baths, knitting needles, other chemicals and things like that. And then in 1961, it all changed, at least for married women. The health minister, Enoch Powell, yes, that one, announced that the oral birth control tablet, known back then as Conovid, would be available on the NHS. It would be up to individual GPs, he said, to decide whom to prescribe it to. Looking back at Hansard, it's remarkable just how little the pill was discussed in Parliament in the 60s, and when it was mentioned, it was by male MPs. So Clive Bossom, the Tory MP for Leinster, argued that the free contraception being debated in 1967 would cut the welfare bill. To supply the pill on the National Health Service, I understand, would cost about £3, 5 shillings a year per head. On the other hand, the cost of keeping a child in a Dr Barnardo's home is approximately £500 a year, and of keeping a child in a state adoption home in the region of £600 a year. The cost of family allowances for the third and subsequent children amounts to £26.16 shillings per child per year. Furthermore, maternity grant amounts to £22. Unfortunately, many high-fertility families are problem families. They periodically have to apply for national assistance. Then we have to add the cost of education and welfare, and this adds up to a substantial amount. It was the cold economic argument for the pill, not the argument that it would liberate women sexually and from the demands of the home. And in fact, the same argument Bossom made, that the state shouldn't have to pay to support families with more than two children, became government policy 50 years later in 2017, when the two-child benefit cap came in. But not all GPs wanted to prescribe the pill, and it was still up to them to decide. Lots of doctors didn't want to be associated with it. Lots of doctors didn't think it was their responsibility because they saw it as more of a social concern rather than a medical concern. And of course, there were health concerns around the pill that it could cause thrombosis and cancer and things like that. So that's the kind of reason for a kind of reluctance to make it widely available. But when it did, I think there was a shift in medical attitudes in particular that doctors thought that if they didn't start prescribing the pill, that they would be left behind and women would go elsewhere, perhaps again to kind of more dangerous methods of birth control that have been used before. And there's evidence to suggest that some women would say that they would go elsewhere if if their doctor wouldn't prescribe them. So there was a level of demand among women at that point. But also it does reflect loosening, I guess, social morals around birth control and, and contraception and sex more widely is much more in the media, much more magazines, television, things like this, which makes it more freely discussed. And two important pieces of legislation in 1967, obviously the Abortion Act, which made abortion legal for a medical practitioner to conduct on on a woman that that, that required it for a medical need, and decriminalisation of homosexuality among consenting adults over the age of 21. So there's a loosening of kind of broader social norms which feed into this idea of making the pill more accessible, more widely available on the NHS. So how much did the pill change how women felt about sex? You might assume that it was wholly liberating, and for many women it was, but not everyone saw it that way at the time. It's difficult to make sweeping generalisations about whether it was wholly liberating or repressive for women. Certainly, 
in the 1970s, feminists would say that it was a repressive tool of the patriarchy that made women more freely available to men's desires than ever before. But, I mean, that had always been the case, that women's sexual desires weren't really taken into account in terms of uh, reproduction or, or marital sex or extramarital sex. It was always around male sexual desire. So that hadn't that didn't really change, and the pill didn't really change that. And certainly there are loads of examples of women that say it was wholly liberating for them to feel like, for the first time, psychologically, they weren't, fearful of becoming pregnant, whether they were married or not. And so psychologically, it was quite powerful in that way. It's also very, very different in terms of the form of what came before. So being in tablet form, again, a kind of representation of medical authority in tablet form um, is very different from the cap and other kind of methods, which are, you know, bluntly quite messy and remind people of their kind of own anatomy and their own body. So the pill symbolically was removed from sex, making it easier to talk about, make it easier for women to take, make it easier for kind of women to actually have control over their own uh, their own fertility. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church was agonising over whether married Catholics should or should not take the pill. It might surprise you to know, it surprised me, that for a little while there was a strong movement for the Pope to approve it. I was a young journalist and then a feminist as well, and of course I was writing for various newspapers. Mary Kenny was a founding member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. In 1968, the Pope, who's then Paul VI, decided there was a sort of Vatican conference coming up to 1968 to, to discuss the pill and whether it could be available to Catholics in the eyes of the Vatican. Now, the Catholic Church had forbidden what they called barrier contraception. There was a sort of theological discussion of this, which was that a barrier put literally an obstacle between husband and wife. And I believe the uh, Orthodox Jews had the same objection to that because marriage was supposed to be two in one flesh. But the pill really introduced a completely new dimension to all this because, of course, it was very discreet, it was private, it, it was a medication in its essence and it didn't have it didn't introduce this idea of a barrier because it was normal sexual intercourse could take place while taking the pill so therefore it was a challenge to the catholic church and most of the experts who the pope consulted believed that it should be allowed so it was by no means inevitable that the catholic church came out against the pill which seems strange now it was a very close-run thing, and Paul VI eventually came out against it, and he issued this famous document, Encyclical Humanae Vitae, which is about the transmission of life. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, it was ruled out, and that was considered a great disappointment. And, of course, many of us wrote very critically about that and said the Vatican had made a big mistake. Some Catholics tried to argue that the pill would lead to fewer abortions, which were a far greater sin in the eyes of the Church. But the argument fell on deaf ears. 
Mary Stokes, who herself was very much in favour of contraception, obviously, campaigner for contraception, was herself opposed to abortion. And she believed that uh, contraception would halt abortion. She actually, she was very, very confident of her own views, of course. And she actually wrote to a previous pope to say, look, we're on the same side. You know, he didn't, Pius XI, who received her letter, didn't quite agree. So that there was a sort of backstory to that where people argued that, of course, it was a better solution. And I think in the general picture, leave aside sort of moral theology, I think most people believed and would believe that contraception is better, actually. It's a better route than an abortion, which will usually be a more traumatic experience. One of the people who developed the pill was actually a Catholic doctor called John Rock, and he did a lot of early work on the pill, and especially he did some work in the field in Puerto Rico where Catholic women were queuing up to get the pill because they did have more children than they were able to support properly. So, I mean, there was a genuine reason why uh, it, it was put forward to help the care and health of mothers. And you were involved in the contraceptive train in 1971, I think. Tell us about that. This is a slightly paradoxical situation because in the Republic of Ireland, birth control had been prohibited in 1935. Now, Ireland wasn't the only country in the world. Which prohib- France had prohibited birth control in 1920. Several American states, particularly states like Minnesota, had also, because there was a terrific concern about falling birth rates during the 1930s. But although in Ireland it was also, it was Catholic influence as well. However, paradoxically, the pill was never prohibited in the Republic of Ireland because it was a pharmaceutical. And the only things that were prohibited were condoms and diaphragms and spermicides, which were barrier methods. So when I was involved in the women's liberation movement in Ireland in 1971, we decided to challenge this law because it was genuinely out of date. So we went to Northern Ireland and we purchased condoms and brought them back to declare them at the Irish Customs in Dublin. And the Irish Customs sort of really folded and allowed us to come through. So we'd effectively broken the law. But there was a, the paradoxical side of it was that, I mean, some of our number among, among the feminists who had studied it were concerned that too many women in Ireland were using the pill because there wasn't another alternative. And so therefore women who might have high blood pressure or other counterindications were actually turning to the pill because of a lack of choice, if you like. It wasn't just Catholic women whose lives changed. Back in the 1950s and 60s, one of the questions always sent to agony aunts in women's magazines shall I sleep with my boyfriend? He wants, he's pressurizing me. He says, you know, he, he loves me and so on. Because I suppose the courtship had a kind of traditional choreography there of the man pursuing and the woman either refusing or acceding. And the old agony aunts always say, not not until there's a ring on your finger. So they, they had that attitude. Some of them said, would write things like, well, he won't respect you, you know, afterwards. So th- there were a lot of sort of social taboos around that whole area of sex and relationships, which, of course, the, eventually the pill entirely overturned. 
the pill kind of recast, you know, the whole choreography of relationships. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. The pill is still the most popular form of contraception today, but going on the pill is not the reflex it once was, and that's partly down to the natural birth control movement on TikTok and YouTube. Here's one wellness influencer explaining why she doesn't want to take hormones. I don't understand how many women are on birth control. It literally changes your hormones. It tricks your body into thinking that you're pregnant and you're ingesting, you know, artificial hormones that are distorting your body, distorting your processes. It's not just physical issues that you're going to have, it's also emotional because imagine living in a body that thinks it's pregnant the whole time. Like That's just not healthy. I don't understand how this is a thing in our society. It really makes me angry. And I really hope girls and women will consider, you know, not going down that route because oftentimes women also take this not because they want it but because they want to please their partner and it really should be for yourself regardless anyways i respect everyone's choices but i do think people need to be informed about the different side effects and the issues that can lead from taking hormone birth control leslie reagan who's professor of gynecology at imperial college london and the women's health ambassador for england is worried about this there's also a feeling amongst many younger women in particular, that hormones may be bad for them, a hormonal contraception, which tends to be the most effective form of contraception. And then many of them have feel from social media and from personal experience that they don't want to, I'm frequently told, put hormones into my body. And they are, I think, often now resorting to apps on their phones and on their tablets that are tracking their cycles. And uh, I think that is also contributing to the very high unplanned pregnancy rate. Natural birth control, obviously, it depends how closely you do it, whether you take your temperature, for example, in the morning and things like that. But in general, it's a fairly risky approach, isn't it? Well, it's certainly got the poorest outcomes in terms of unplanned pregnancies, yes. It's a great pity, I think, that, that I think there is a bit of a misconception, pardon the pun, they are all going to be fine because it's natural. But actually, many, many girls and women find themselves being caught out by it. And I think that's a great pity because there are so many forms of contraception, not just hormonal contraception, that are available to women. 
and I think is a little bit like hormone replacement therapy at the other end of the reproductive life, that if one preparation doesn't suit you, it really, really does pay to try some some different ones rather than reject them completely. Or consider some form of mechanical device like a, a coil, or particularly if you've got heavy or painful periods, the Mirena device, I think, is absolutely transformed gynecology in terms of not just contraception, but management of problem periods. After I spoke to Leslie, the government announced it was going to make the pill available through pharmacists. When their contraception fails, some women will go ahead with the pregnancy, but a lot will not. There's been a very dramatic increase in uh, early abortions, and we think that's partly to do with younger women not wanting to take hormonal contraception, but... More importantly, I think, is the increase in older women who, when I talk to them about why they're requesting an abortion or termination of pregnancy, they tell me very clearly that it's because they can't access long-acting reversible contraception. So these are women who've completed their families, they may be in their late 30s or 40s, and they can't get the sort of contraception they want, like a Mirena device or a coil or an implant or a, a combined pill. But the fact that younger women are turning to social media for contraceptive advice is not just their fault. The NHS is not making it easy for them. Contraception has become very difficult to access in this country, which I think is a great shame and something that I'm trying really hard with my ambassadorial role with the government to change because I think it's the cornerstone of women's health and well-being, the ability to be able to control their fertility and decide if, when, with whom and how many times they become pregnant. And nor is it just because it can be so hard to get a routine GP appointment. This goes back to 2012 and the introduction of the Health and Social Care Act, where commissioning of services for contraception were divided into three different recipients or silos, I would now say. And that has meant that funding has become very territorial for contraception, which, as I say, is the most cost-effective intervention in the whole of healthcare. So this is why it's particularly sad that it is so difficult to access now for women. And the silos don't talk to each other. And they also, the other problem is that the three commissioning strands for contraception, they don't have to pick up the problem of the unplanned pregnancy or the increase in abortion. That goes into somebody else's pot. So I'm a great believer in if you you don't have to fund the consequences of not delivering a service well, then there's not much incentive to do it well. On the face of it, It's odd that a society that's increasingly at ease with sex and porn can't do a better job of stopping unwanted pregnancy. The old taboos and inhibitions have pretty much vanished. But women still resent the things we're expected to do to avoid getting pregnant. And the knowledge that if we do, it's us who have to choose between abortion and a lifetime of looking after another human being. The story of contraception has a long way to run. If you enjoyed this episode, have you listened to the original series? Just search Jam Tomorrow in your podcast app. Find out what Britons wanted after the war and whether we got it. I'm Ros Taylor, and that was Jam Tomorrow. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jade Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by Jim Parrott. 
Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson and Seth Tavo. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI digital website. The tips for American servicemen can be found at the Imperial War Museum online archive. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.